Hello everyone, welcome back to IXDA Stories, offering stories of the Interaction Design Association by the community, for the community. Each episode this season, we'll be taking a deep dive with some of the thought leaders and partners of the upcoming Interaction 21 conference. I'm your host, Alexi Morin. We're very excited today to bring you an interview with one of Interaction 21's day one keynote speakers, the renowned Aza Raskin. Aza has been called a Silicon Valley heretic for his Herculean efforts to identify and combat the harms of modern technology and lead the creation of a new generation of humane technology with the Center for Humane Technology, an organization he co-founded. Beyond attempting to solve the destructive, extractive attention economy, Aza is also the co-founder of the Earth Species Project, an open-source collaborative using AI to try and decode animal communication. And if that's not impressive enough, Aza has a mind-blowing list of other accomplishments and accolades, including having founded and taken to acquisition three companies, chairing the World Economic Forum's Global AI Council, and being named Fast Company's Master of Design, and one of Forbes' 30 Under 30. Oh, and to top it all off, he also studied as a mathematician and dark matter physicist. How cool is that? So without further ado, here's Aza Raskin, speaking with Poppy Guthrie, a member of the Interaction 21 team and an IXDA local leader in Indianapolis, Indiana. Let's just start with a warm-up. Tell me a little bit about yourself, something that we might not pick up in your extensive bios that we could find online. (laughs) Um, Whatever comes to mind, um, I thought something interesting was maybe your transition from mathematics and physics back to design, if you Mm -hmm. wanted to speak a little bit about that. Mathematics and physics, for me, are incredible tools. They're really maps that let you understand the whys of the universe, let you figure out why things happen the way they do. And to me, the transition back to design is actually not so surprising because design is about asking, why is it that humans work the way they do? And in fact, mathematics, physics, design, art, language, metaphor are all very similar. They're mechanisms by mapping the whys and the hows of the universe and then turning it into a kind of praxis. One of my favorite metaphors is origami. Like I always come back to origami because I think it's, um, it's, it's just one of those universal metaphors. And I'll, I'll, give, I'll give an example of how I like to use it. Um, nature versus nurture. Nature is sort of like the net of a origami. It's the pre-existing folds, but with the same net, you can make a crane or you can make a frog. There are many things you can make with the same folds, but there are many things you can't make. So some things are allowed, some things are not allowed, but there's a lot of creativity in there. So nature is the folds, nurture is how it folds up. We can also think of language as a kind of piece of origami that folds in on itself. So for example, synonyms. Words that mean the same thing but are pronounced differently, that's like one kind of fold where language like touches in on itself and where it touches are the synonyms. But if you fold it a different way, those are the rhymes, the words that sound similar, 
but mean different things. And so it's just, it's sort of a fun way of thinking about it. Or um, I think it's an incredible metaphor for ergonomics where, you know, there's an ergonomics of our body, how the human body bends and folds. And we design chairs with the knowledge of how we bend and fold, because if we don't, you know, we break our backs. We like cease to be able to stand right. Um, but there's an ergonomics of the mind that's cognetics. And there's an ergonomics of human relationships. And there's an ergonomics of communities. And there's an ergonomics of societies. And if we're unaware of those ergonomics, then when we design systems for them and make technology, we end up bending and folding ourselves in ways that tear us or break us. And instead, like you can imagine, if you really understand uh, the origami of human ergonomics, then you can make incredible unit origami and beautiful structures. And I think those are the kinds of systems we wish to be creating. Like that's how Facebook and Twitter and Instagram should be designed, but they're sort of blind to those multiple scales of ergonomics. And so they end up like ripping apart the fabric of our identities, the fabric of our relationships and the fabric of our societies. Can you tell more on cognetics? Well, in, you know, in the same way that there's just some fundamental truths about the, how the human body works. Like if you design an interface that requires people to press two buttons that are 10 feet apart at the same time, it's just impossible. If you design a, a chair in such a way that it's like, you know, there's like a, a bump right in your lumbar, can be super uncomfortable and you're not gonna be able to sit right and it's gonna cause damage. So cognetics is like understanding like how does the human mind work? What are its biases? How does it bend and fold? All right, that's how you get like the seven plus or minus two. How many things can you remember? You get peak end effect, like people remember of an experience, like the peak experience and how an experience ends, which is why if you're designing a, a vacation, you should always have the best experience be end loaded so that that becomes your memory. Um, it's things like understanding the illusory truth effect, which is that the more times you hear something repeated, the more likely you are to think it's true. And that's even when the claim that you're hearing repeated gets debunked. And so where that comes into play, right, is that the way that Facebook and Twitter's amplification algorithms work is that it creates a kind of attention monopoly where people that post a lot get an extra boost. They sort of get a tailwind. Um, and that means that the most uh, misinformation is driven by a very small number of accounts because they're the ones posting all the time. And so it becomes an attention monopoly. And that's a, if you don't understand like the illusory truth effect, that if you make a trend, you make it true, you, you'll design poorly uh, and sort of break our information ecology. There's another one that I think is wonderful, which is uh, rhyming bias. People view as more true things that rhyme. And uh, you know, it's just, there you go. So those are uh, stopping cues, right? Like people, um, if you're drinking a glass of wine, your brain sort of wakes up when you finish that glass of wine and asks, do you want another one? But if the glass of wine continually refills, you don't really have that stopping cue, so you just keep going. Um, and that's what infinite scroll does, right? Like the more you scroll, like you, you never get the cue that you should stop and your brain never has the chance to catch up to your impulse. So those are the kinds of things which are cognetics or the ergonomics of the mind. What is the most important concept that you would like to share with this audience? I think there are two like twin concepts to be shared. The first is, you know, where are we as humanity? What, what problems do we face? And E.O. Wilson has this wonderful quote, which is, 
problem humanity faces is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. That the lever of technology gets longer and longer and longer. So when we make small changes, we do increasing amounts of damage. As technology becomes exponentially more godlike, it requires as designers exponential more wisdom to be able to wield it without hurting ourselves and hurting our societies and hurting our relationships. That requires an exponential sensitivity to where we as human beings have vulnerabilities. So that's sort of one, that the scope um, and the power and the surface area on our lives that technology now has is so pervasive that we have to be, we like our, our responsibility has to scale with that power. The second concept is there's still a glass ceiling to design. And that glass ceiling is the business model. It's how our companies are funded and it's how our companies make money. We as a, uh, as a profession, I think need to be taking interviews at companies like Facebook and companies like Twitter. And in that process of doing the interview, asking how it will be possible for designs that try to heal our social fabric, um, that don't promote um, sort of like hate speech, um, that, that don't have algorithms where hate is a, uh, has a home field advantage, how designs that address that, because I think we as designers um, and user researchers and anthropologists have a lot to say and a lot to do here, um, but how we just won't get broken by the growth team. And I think that kind of questioning when we are interviewing and going into companies can have profound, uh, profound effects. What are some tactics that you think people could employ either in a big or small company or product as designer? I think there are a couple different layers to that answer. Um, one layer is just get to know the other designers across teams and have conversations about like what values like you think the company should be putting into their products, like where uh, your company should be making a stand because it's really scary to do it alone, to be the one person raising your hand. But it turns out a lot of people are thinking the exact same thing, right? Like what's different between now and four years ago is I think most people really see the problem now. The social dilemma was watched, Netflix told us, 38 by 38 million households in the first 28 days. So that's something like 50 million people. So all of a sudden, like we have a shared vocabulary to talk about it and coming together to talk about it really does start to shift a company's direction. Um, I think some really tactical stuff is working to integrate anti-metrics in with the metrics. That is so often like we have just one metric, you know, daily or weekly or monthly active users or session time. And that just sort of like collapses humans down to like one number. And instead, if we can have anti-metrics or other metrics that we're trying to say, hey, um, if, if one number goes up, this number needs to go down so that you sort of like broaden out what it means to make a product successful, I think that's really good. And the other is pushing for sort of thicker data in the sort of Tricia Wang term or like anthropological studies. Don't just rely on usage numbers, like really push for getting out into the field so that the people closest to the pain have say in product direction. Let's take a step back, something a little, maybe a little lighter. 
um, that I was really intrigued by is, is your upbringing in, in Silicon Valley and uh, like the influence your, your father had over you and being around all of these inventors and great minds. Can you speak a little bit about that? Growing up in Silicon Valley, growing up with my father was, it was a really, it was hard to know how special it was until of course, like you like have some distance from it. It was a constant sense of possibility and just trying stuff. I remember in, uh, in my house, my father had a shop that he'd built over many years. We, we made model airplanes and we had uh, a entire wall of tiny little bins with Legos inside of it, all labeled by one by one, one by twos, one by threes, one by fours, one by four thins, one by four caps, the blocks with the holes in them, like all the shafts, all the connectors. And what I loved about that is that it took the distance between having a thought and having something in your hand, almost nothing. In my later company, like one of our values has always been like, never have a meeting when a prototype will do. And I really feel like that's how I was brought up. And Jeff would really add the context to everything that I was learning. I'd be taking a math class, but he would always like add the historical context where it was. And I remember him teaching me like, I don't know, in like fifth grade, the proof that 0.9999999 forever actually equals one. And the proof that one half plus one fourth plus one eighth plus one sixteenth dot 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 forever equals one. And showing there's a it's, a, it's a fairly simple proof that George Cantor originally did that there are multiple sizes of infinities and some infinities are the same size, but some infinities are bigger than other infinities. And that sense of wonder has really just pervaded my life um, because the world is more magical than it seems. And using the tools of science um, and mathematics, we can begin to describe what actually is. It's so pretty. Wow, yeah, that is really special. <laughs> I have two more questions. I know we're a little close to time, but I think people might wanna hear more about your Earth Species Project, if you wanna speak a little bit about that. Yeah, and there, there are actually two projects that I should talk about. Okay. Uh, one is Make Space Foundation, and one is Earth Species Project. Earth Species Project, actually returning to some of my, my original uh, loves, which is language. Um, and uh, actually, when I was in um, college, I got really into writing stochastic approximators to, to English, essentially things that looked at the statistical patterns of language and would generate new language. And I ended up turning in a paper in college that was mostly generated. It was a little cherry picked by me, but I like trained it on all of my peers' uh, essays. And I remember it getting like a, a C, um, which I'm like, ha, because one kid got a C minus. Um, so technically it passed the Turing test. Uh, but what the Earth Species Project is, is that it's using the latest in sort of advanced machine learning to map and then decode and then translate animal communication and non-human language. Um, and it's a nonprofit. The goal in the end really is the culture change that comes with seeing that either we're not as special as we think, or what I like to think more is that the rest of the world is way more special than we think. Um, and the 
fundamental technology that lets us even believe that this is possible is a new field called unsupervised machine translation, which in 2017 showed that you can, without any examples, without um, any Rosetta Stone, without any dictionary, you can translate between at least two human languages. So imagine that you could just, you were given a book in an alien language and a different book in a different alien language. And somehow by just studying the statistics of the languages, you can translate between the two. That's possible, it's sort of like babblefish technology. And it sort of works by creating a shape which represents a language, you imagine sort of a galaxy, um, and you make that shape for German, excuse me, you make that shape for German, you make that shape for Japanese, and by aligning the two shapes on top of each other, um, just matching shape to shape, the point which is dog ends up being in the same place in both languages, and you can do the translation. And it's not just true for Japanese and German, but for Finnish and Turkish and Korean and Chinese. And there's this sort of hidden pattern that unites human beings because what is language but a model of the world and how we feel about it? And despite the drastic differences in our contexts, in our histories, in our cultures, still there is such a fundamental similarity that most human languages, it appears, sort of share a universal hidden shape. And the question we're asking is, can you build these shapes for animal communication? And if you can, is there any overlap with human communication? And if there is, well, you start to build yourself a Rosetta Stone. And honestly, I can't tell which will be more fascinating. The parts where we overlap in experience and can translate, or the parts where we can see that there's complex structure, but can't be directly translated into the human experience. Because that's where you're gonna get the greatest perspective and perhaps wisdom. Um, so, uh, that's, that's a little bit about the Earth Species Project. It's something I'm so excited about. We're working with um, just the most, honestly, I feel like my, my days get to be a dream because we work with people like Dana Reese who did the original research that showed that elephants and dolphins are self-aware. That is, they would paint a dot on a dolphin or an elephant where they didn't know that there was a dot on them. They would then look in a mirror, see the dot on the image in the mirror and try to get the dot off. That sort of shows that they have to be aware of what they're looking at. Um, uh, and we're working with like uh, Brendan McCallan, Leila Seng, and um, just a lot of the luminaries of the field um, and getting to apply these new tools uh, to old problems. And it's, it's just so exciting because it's, you know, I sort of think of these tools like the, um, the microscope times the telescope of our era in the sense that they let you see both like with greater granularity, but then much broader scale. And my hope, our hope is that just like the telescope, let us look out at the universe and discover that earth was not at the center, that these tools are gonna let us look out at the universe and discover that, hey, humanity is not at the center. That can be so powerful for reimagining our human experience, yeah. exciting. And you said that you had another project you wanted to oh, talk uh, about? Thank you. Make Space. Um, so this is a project I'm working with um, Weiwei, Meili, uh, Jason, um, Julius. Uh, and um, it's trying to take a lot of, you know, humane technology and put it into practice. Like 
right now, if you want to be social online, you sort of are forced because our operating systems aren't um, aren't collaborative, aren't social. They're designed for single user mode, which is crazy. We live in 2020, and the most advanced operating systems like you know iOS and Android, they're still designed for just solar user mode, and that means you have to move into an app, which is normally an attention or surveillance capital based application to be social. Um, and that sucks because we have to use contaminated infrastructure for the things that we need. And that's fundamentally unsafe. That's why they're inhumane. And so the question we're exploring um, with, with MakeSpace is what would it be like to really understand the ergonomics of how people gather and have fun don't design it for corporations. Like Zoom is great, but it's sort of sterile. It's like designed for B2B corporations, not designed for, you know, like the artists and the aunties um, and like friends to like come and spend time together. Um, uh, and it also really tries to um, sort of harken back to that, that, that very first vision of the web was the first browser was read and write. Right? It was both about like being able to like read the web, but it wasn't just consumptive. You could just as easily change the web um, as you're browsing it. And it was just a fluke of history that the second and the third browsers didn't have write. It just took too much time to, to actually code that up. Um, and so then consumption became the default of the web. And so for us, we're, we're really creating these sort of like 2D zoomable canvas spaces um, where creation is just as easy as consumption. So we're, we're, we're really excited about it. Um, uh, Meili uh, Co is one of, I think, the, um, the judges for the XDA uh, competition. Um, and uh, everyone should go check out makespace.fun. If you could commission any artist, dead or alive, to create a work of art just for you, who would it be and why? I'm gonna cheat slightly. And I would love to have a collaboration with James Terrell and Brian Eno. And I'd love it to be a space for thinking in with others. James Terrell is, like, does those incredible, um, they're, they're generally spaces where there's like a column of light or a window that's surprising. It's just like space and light um, are his medium. Um, and Brian Eno, I feel like does the same thing, but in the, audio space mm. um, and so it's like I just I think that would be a, a beautiful contemplative space for like contemplation it would just be really I think I think it'd be a vibe yeah maybe for uh, an earth species reveal Ooh, I love it <laughs> I love it is there something else that you think that you should share with the pre-interaction audience I'm really excited for what our field does next because you know we as a field I think have the practical knowledge and the theoretical sort of underpinnings to understand what brings people together and how to create interfaces where people can find meaning and create. And now that we live in a world where we're all stuck behind our screens and we only see each other and the world through the rectangle of our screens, like that work is so necessary. And if we can band together and use that power and really push against and like up level our 
sort of resistance against business models that are tarnishing the things that we build, um, I think we could be a really big part of re-strengthening the social fabric that technology has replaced. That is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And I look forward to hearing you on stage. Thank you so much, Bhakti. This was really wonderful. I don't get to talk about some of these things, at least not all together. So it's really nice. What an awe-inspiring range of thought starters to contemplate. Design as origami. The role and risks of cognitive biases, like the peak-end effect, the glass ceiling of the business model for designers and tech, and the importance of anti-metrics, and the promise of a truly social virtual environment. We couldn't be more excited to hear from Aza at Interaction 21. Join us next time, when we'll be speaking with Mel McCubrey, an associate creative director working on the next installment of the critically acclaimed Bioshock series about representation, inclusivity, and bettering the video game industry. Our guest this episode was Asa Raskin. Our interviewer was Poppy Guthrie. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Peter Last. I'm your host, Alexi Morin. The music is by New Tendencies. You can find their socials in the show notes. Thanks to them for letting us use it. We are a team of volunteers who love what they do and want to make a positive impact on the field of interaction design. Don't miss our upcoming episodes by subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.